0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and, making a welcome debut, Faker others, the journalist and broadcaster. Chelsea are on top of the Premier League, Not on alphabetical order as most of us assumed, but because they scored an away goal at Anfield in their 10-man draw there. Liverpool have an identical record after five games, but arguably have greater momentum. Three wins in a week have revealed different qualities. So I suppose one question really, Faye, have they got their mojo back?
2: Well, it certainly feels like it, doesn't it? I mean, everybody's underestimated Liverpool this season, I think, Mike, and do that at your peril, we've seen before. But because of the the, the flashiness, if you like, of some of the signings of their competitors, when you think of Grealish at Manchester City and Lukaku at, at Chelsea, Liverpool have very much gone under the radar. I mean, look, they've had Norwich in their opening game, which was very straightforward, Burnley as well. That Chelsea game was a was a really tough one for them, and and they were they were pushed all the way by Chelsea, even down to to ten men, Chelsea, and then of course straightforward against Leeds, but again against ten men, and then that. That result against Milan, I feel as if in some ways that's kind of woken people up to Liverpool because it was such a battling performance against a really tough side. Then they go and do another 3-0. That's three 3-0s this season so far against Crystal Palace. And they just feel with all the returning players that they've got as if they've definitely got got their mojo back, which we expected once the likes of Virgil van Dyke, Joe Gomez, who perhaps hasn't, you know, had as good a, a start as people would have wanted him to. And then, you know, the, the, the new styling of Canate. Um, it's making a real difference. And I think they are genuine title contenders this season.
1: Yeah, last season, John, we, you know, became Almost inured to the fact that there were in enforced changes almost every week. Now Jurgen Klopp's got the luxury of making six changes for a game like Palace, an entirely new defence. Does that tell you that now he's got the resources to work with? You know, last season could almost be almost looked at as almost a
3: blip. A blip, but I also think a bit of a learning experience. In that, I do think that of all the top teams. I look at them and think they've rotated the most. And I think Jurgen Klopp is being understandably cautious in the way that he uses Van Dijk. I mean, to see Van Dijk on the bench against Milan was amazing, really. Because I think that a lot of people have underestimated just what a good team Milan are. I mean, I think they're a team rebuilding in in transition. But they were runners-up in Serie A last season, and they are on the way back. And I think that victory was incredibly important to Liverpool's season and the way that he approached the next month, two months, because it gives them a good foundation and it enables them to push on from here. But I do think that the injuries last season have served as a real warning to Klopp in that basically he doesn't want to overstress players, doesn't want to overuse players. And I think they were given... That has to be, that result against Crystal Palace on on Saturday, as Jurgen Klopp even said afterwards, I mean, that, that has to be the most testing, tough examination you're ever likely to see in that sort of result. A 3-0 that felt like a 1-0, and it was much tighter than that. And I, I thought it was a real tough examination of Liverpool. It was good to see Kanate come in, good to see you know, Naby Keita then make an impression as well. And it just, it, it felt as if, Liverpool putting all these pieces together. Where I think that Liverpool... I think that basically it's going to be Chelsea and City as the, as the two front runners, and what we expect. I do think Liverpool will be in the mix. But where I think the test comes is that Liverpool, I think, will continue to rotate and understandably so from Klopp's perspective over the next few weeks. It's when Liverpool find a rhythm and they find that they kick into gear, that they find they're putting out the same 11 each week. If they can pick up that momentum... I wouldn't bet against them at all, because in the title-winning season, before everything shut down, it was about that rhythm. They were unstoppable when they got into gear. And then I just think if they can pick that up again, if they can get that momentum, then I think they'll be in a three-horse title race without a shadow of a doubt.
1: Yeah, I've gone out on a bit of a limb earlier on in the year by saying I think Liverpool could be European champions this year, simply because of that momentum factor that you talked about there, John. And in that context, Fay, I suppose what we've seen recently in the last couple of games has been a restatement of the importance of Mane, who had been missing a few chances, and Mo Salah.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Salah is just pure quality, but Mane had perhaps been a bit slow off the starting blocks of all the, the attackers that Liverpool have. But his one hundredth. 100th... Liverpool goal in all competitions, you know, maybe maybe that'll be a bit of a statement for him to keep him going for the rest of the season. He, he, he'd missed loads of chances earlier, but I mean, sometimes it just takes a little bit of time, doesn't it? Some players, you know, are straight out of the starting blocks at the beginning of the season and, and scoring left, right and centre, a la Cristiano Ronaldo and, uh, and Romelu Lukaku. Equally, maybe Mane just, you know, just needed to bed himself in a little bit this season, once he does, when you've got that kind of rotation, I know we're not talking really too much at the moment about Roberto Firmino, who's been a bit off the boil, but with Jota, Salah uh, and Mane, they they really are a force to be reckoned with and they need Mane and Salah in particular to be on their best form this season if they're going to be competing, and I think they will be.
1: Yeah, Yeah, there's there's a phrase used actually usually in basketball, John, about, Glue guys, you know guys who actually, when they do play, glue a team together. I look at Liverpool and see someone like James Milner, you know, playing at right back, thirty-five, dealing with Wilf Sahar. He's almost like their man for all seasons, isn't he?
3: Yeah, he really is, Mike. I do think he's he's so capable, isn't he? Whether it's right back, left back, central midfield, he, he's happy to play wherever. I do look at him and I think. I can't think of a more obvious player who's going to move into management right now because I think that the way he picks up and looks at the game, learns from the game, I think is really striking as well. He's just so intelligent as a player, isn't he? He's just, he'll take one for the team, you know, in terms of a booking or a tactical foul and he just does the right, he just does the clever thing, the right thing all the time. You know, he always puts the team first. I think it's so interesting that he's, I think he was he was there for a, for a game, wasn't he, where, where he was suspended or looking at the kids. And, and I just think he's just one that you just think, yeah, he's definitely going to be a manager. He's going to be straight out of the mould of a of a Lampard or a Gerrard who suddenly wants to get into management straight away. And I just think that eagerness and willingness to learn strikes in his on-the-field performances. You can't understate his value and importance, I think, to the squad. He's such an important squad player. Does anything for the team. And I love his enthusiasm. I think you marry that also up with the return of Jordan Henderson. Because I think Jordan Henderson has been blended back quite slowly. It was such a strange summer for him because he was dipped into the England sort of set-up, wasn't he? And played here and there. And I just think equally, Liverpool have been a little bit cautious, but you're beginning to see him back to his best form. What a goal against Milan, commanding performances since. And I think he's going to be so important over the next few months.
1: Yeah, Liverpool have got Brentford next, Faye. Just on on that for a second, Ivan Toney is obviously looking like a quality Premier League striker. Already talk of him for England. Is he a potential big move waiting to happen, do you think?
2: Yeah, maybe, but I think he needs to properly prove his Premier League worth first. I think we're we're five games into the season, it's quite quite early to be saying that. You know, he's got a penalty and an assist in the last game, but he is absolutely phenomenal. And if you can imagine what he would be like with world-class service, yes, I can see that he would potentially get a big move. Equally, I think he's young enough that you know at Brentford he's developing and finding a different style and I think as a striker you have to learn how to win difficult games when you don't necessarily have the big money players in your team because he has to show a different side of his game and I think that's quite important for his development doing that doing that at Brentford but you know he's just an incredible player and and actually what Brentford have done this season it, it is amazing eight points from from five games and people would have perhaps expected them not to have started the season quite so solidly.
1: Yeah. We we'll just go on if we could John, you know to the two teams you mentioned earlier, City and Chelsea. You know City are at Chelsea next weekend. Chelsea they look
3: remorseless at the moment, don't they? They do. I <laughs> I think they've got a really fantastic coach, haven't they? I mean, what a difference he's made since coming in in January, Thomas Tuchel. He's given them a fantastic belief, first and foremost. He's given them a new energy. He's given them direction. I love the way he sets up the team. I I, I think the improvements week by week have been fantastic, remarkable. The signing of Romelu Lukaku in the summer has taken them to a whole new level. The options now that he has in midfield is just remarkable. Jorginho, Kovacic. I mean, that, those two themselves are playing so well right now. And I think Kante, you know, the difference he made at Tottenham coming on for Mount, who was a bit more perhaps front-running, but he needed a bit more of a, of a steal, a bit more access to to his midfield to go and win the game. He's got incredible depth there. We almost forget this on Sal in the summer, right at the end of the window. I mean, it, it was really a very forceful, imposing midfielder himself. So I think when when basically he comes to fruition, when he comes good and fun, adapts to English football, I think that Chelsea are really going to be a force to be reckoned with. What I really like about them is that they've just got these, they've got options all over the pitch, whether that's a wing-back, Keppel came back yesterday to, to play in goal, they've got forward options, the rebirth of Marcus Alonso is astonishing absolutely amazing, such an outlet at Tottenham. And I think that that Chelsea, frankly, are going to take some stopping. Look, I I said before the start of the season, maybe I fancied City. You can't really change your predictions six weeks in or whatever it is, but I wish I could, because I just think that Chelsea are going to win the league, really. I think they're the best team by far, and they look awesome. They look absolutely awesome in every department, so much to be admired. Yeah, you you were at the the new White Hart Lane yesterday, Faye. What we saw
1: there was Tuchel's in-game management, you know, working out perfectly. Kante turned the game really for coming on for for Mason Mount. It's it's, it's going to sound extraordinary, but is Kante almost underestimated? You know, when we talk about the great players in the Premier League. He never gets a massive mention does he whereas I think he's the most consistent player out there.
2: Yeah, he definitely is. I think I think the the problem and the amazing thing about Angola Kante is that he's such a an under the radar personality as well, so he doesn't shout about his performances; he's incredibly humble, and so he does just go about his business diligently, doing what he needs to do, and lets everybody else take the headlines and Those to me are the best kind of players because they don't want that limelight, but they are the engine room, and he certainly you know, I've talked before about Mason Mount and, and the fact that a lot of what he does goes under the radar. And I think he gets unfairly criticised by a lot of people. Golo Kante never gets that kind of criticism because you just don't really notice him. And those are the kind of players that are the most dangerous. You noticed him yesterday at half time. The minute, the minute he came on, Chelsea were a completely different prospect because... He closed down every single ball that Tottenham got. He didn't give them a minute's piece. And I mean, to get a goal and he's, he's not scored, I was trying to think when it was, like something like November 2019, albeit an enormous deflection off of, off of Eric Dyer. Those are the kind of things, moments that he can come up with, but still won't manage to make it all about him. But it was all about him. Equally, I would say, talking about the rebirth of of Marcus Alonso, Emerson Royale just gave him so much room down the left-hand side. He was just, for me, he's not quite up to Premier League speed at the moment and towards the end of the game when Chelsea were turning it on because they could have had six if it wasn't for Hugo Lloris, to be honest. Emerson Royale just almost downed tools, didn't track back, incredibly frustrating from a Spurs point of view, whereas everybody else was still in the box. He was just trundling his way back and let Marcus Alonso do what he liked. So I think that contributed to him. But but going back to your point about Angola Kante, just the most incredible player in the, in the Premier League, won so much Champions League, Premier League, everything else, but just happily goes about his business consistently as you say just unfortunate maybe last year with some injuries and at the beginning of this season but hopefully can get a good run of games now
1: Yeah I think actually when you mentioned Emerson Royale there I think there's a moral in that story where you know beware if you're, you're buying Barcelona's cast offs. there's
3: one or two around like that at the moment <laughs> Well unbelievably that has to, has to be the most crazy wackiest sale ever they had bought him and then sold him instantaneously to a profit He's. I mean, <laughs> we should ignore the fact that basically must have the best name in the Premier League. I mean, what a fantastic <laughs> really. But it's having, having seen a little bit of him, I've got to say, I think face spot on in the basically he's going to be that that fullback that is either going to work by playing attack the best form of defence by pushing back his winger by, because he's rampaging forward. Defence is not his game. I do think it's a gamble; it's a risk. Whether he can work in the conventional back four, let's wait and see. Because it's, uh, yeah, I think that I think he's I think he's going to have a lot of work to do and a lot of lessons to learn defensively.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose the other thing that came came across very strongly, Faye, yesterday was the Chelsea's ability just to completely shut a game down. I, th- I think that they haven't yet conceded a goal from open play. I just thought the the spirit of that was epitomised by. Tiago Silva you know when you think about it he's nearly 37 he's won everything that there is still that competitive drive there which comes across really strongly Chelsea basically have got it all at both ends haven't they
2: yeah, they have. And actually, he was my man of the match yesterday, Thiago Silva, because he defended fantastically in the first half when Spurs were throwing absolutely everything at Chelsea. He was blocking shots left, right and centre, tracking back. He was excellent. Then to go up and score that goal, he could have had another one as well, but fantastic, another fantastic Laurie stop. And it was almost an identical goal as well from a corner and a header at the far post. But he is just you talk about age in football now we're we're all getting on a bit and so you kind of look at I still don't think that necessarily 37 sounds old but that's only a few years younger than me and I can't imagine the fitness levels that Thiago Silva at 37 Ronaldo is he 36 have got that's that's just astounding to me that I would have been able to do that three or four years ago for a start but it's, it's his mentality, I think. He is a winner. He has that drive. He wants to win every single game he's involved in. He wants to win every single ball that comes his way. And, I, I mean, fantastic for, for Chelsea to have somebody like that in the back line. He's also a leader uh, along with that. And, um, yeah, phenomenal player.
1: Yeah, listen, Faye, we're all in the prime of life. Don't worry about it, OK?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, um, John, we've got... City and Chelsea at the weekend, then the following week, City are at Liverpool uh, on October the 3rd. Early days, but they do seem to be key fixtures, don't they?
3: They do. And City's a really interesting story at the moment, isn't it? Don't think they're playing to their best ability. Hell of a game against RB Leipzig in, in in the Champions League. And then... The frustrations of a goalless draw, which could have been worse, by the way, with the Carl Walker penalty appeal and sort of red card VAO are overturning that. I'm still, still not quite sure about that, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think could have easily lost that game. And then also Guardiola sort of kind of taking on, on the fans, which, frankly, yeah, as a manager, you are always on a hide into nothing on that. I, I actually think that Guardiola... I always think of an absolute genius. I love Guardiola so much. I think he produce, the football he produces, the teams that he builds, but my god he got that wrong last week. I mean, it's just it's and so much of it could be could have been said with a little bit more grace and you know just saying our fans are the best in the world, we're going to really need them at the weekend, please come up and sort of kind of support us. You just don't need to go into the where are you? Territory sort of thing of last week because I didn't think you know football fans have been through hell of a lot. A lot of them have suffered incredible financial hardship. They, they don't need to be told, and they don't want to be told about the need to come support their team because they never lose faith. If you're a Man City fan, you're enjoying the best football of your of your of your life, basically your best football you will ever see under Guardiola, and I, I just think it was it didn't didn't pan out well because I think the fans turned out on Saturday and the team didn't, frankly, and they just didn't, didn't click into gear. It worries me so much about that. And listen, we shouldn't say, we're talking about sort of crucial fixtures and they could have a bad run, they could sort of draw a lot of games between now and yet we can still remember that their title race didn't really kick in until about December last year <laughs> when they suddenly found an incredible, unstoppable march towards the Premier League title. So I do think they'll find a the momentum I do think it worries me about the lack of a real focal point to score them goals. They've got so much creativity. They've got so much excitement going forward. But I think in the key games, when games are really, really tight in those crunch games at Chelsea against Liverpool, I do think it's that is when we might see City come unstuck without a, a, a sort of a striker. And I know they did it last year. And I know they did it missing Aguero for large parts of the season. But I just feel as if it's a gamble, and I think we, don't, we won't know quite how it will pan out, but it worries me for City that basically they're going into the season with a, a little bit of an unknown, a bit of a gamble, and I just feel as if, I don't know, maybe it's, that's, that explains Guardiola's frustrations a little bit, and I just think, let, let's see what the next few weeks bring, but I do think that City could be a really interesting kind of story stroke soap opera this season. Yeah, yeah, you know, I
1: agree with you about the comments about the fans. It was clumsy at best, and mm. there is also, I think, the danger of crying wolf here because you know by saying he'll step aside, uh, quotes. I think it was if I'm a problem for my fans, he's just created an unnecessary agenda. The psychology of this situation fascinates me, Faye. Do you think? And I've got a hunch this is this might be close to the mark that there's there's been a real hangover from City's defeat by Chelsea in the Champions League final because that was a real blow for Guardiola personally because he was really questioned afterwards, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, his tactics were questioned and, you know, he got the tactics wrong. He needed to put his hands up and and say that really, how you can not play Fernandinho, I, I just don't understand at all. I find... Pep Guardiola, and I mean this with the most amount of respect, I find him very passive aggressive at times and his personal frustrations seem to then spill out, which then brings unnecessary attention to his team. And I I, I 100% agree with you. There is a hangover from that Champions League. It's It's a big mental battle to have to get over to finally reach the Champions League final when that is the piece of silverware that you want as city manager. and fail at the final hurdle and we saw it with England with the euros and yet they've managed to find the mental strength to to come back and uh, and put in improved performances and it's it's made them hungrier i think because of the kind of team that manchester city are I'd, until we see them in champions league competition fully in terms of the knockout stages I don't think we can really judge whether or not that is a full hangover because that is still the piece of silverware they want as John said last season in the Premier League they had a stuttering start turned it on in January and were absolutely dominant so I don't think we can write them off in terms of the Premier League but I just don't think the Premier League is their priority.
1: That's very true. Jurgen Klopp you know he made a virtue out of relatively little transfer activity you know Canate made his debut on Saturday. was their only major signing. Does it say everything about modern football, John, that Jack Grealish's £100 million move has almost been taken for granted? It's, oh, yeah, well, City have just spent another £100 million. Does he offer City anything distinctively different, do you think? And I know it's really, really early days, but do you think he will be a catalyst for the sort of season that City fans
3: are expecting. So I do like Grealish and I do think he's an exciting player, but I I, I do know what you mean in that if you look at the, what he might create differently or give you in comparison to Bernardo Silva, you could almost make a case, couldn't you, for marginal gains and... Is he a bit of an upgrade? I would argue, yes. He gives them something slightly better, something slightly different. But is it £100 million worth of improvement and, and difference? Maybe the fans shouldn't worry about that and just enjoy the quality that the club has brought. And he is a really such a good player. But it does leave you wondering whether the difference that Grealish makes at £100 million, is that the same impact and difference that a striker, a number nine, would have given them. And I think that's that's the key, isn't it? So I think that basically if they'd gone all out and used that 100 million plus another whatever, 50, 60, to go and get Harry Kane as their focal point, then I think the fans would be going, wow, what a summer. And as it stands, I think they'd be going... Okay, I really like Grealish. Listen, Grealish is such a fun, exciting player to watch. So I'm not deriding him in any way. But it's the level of difference that he makes to the team. And you've broken the British transfer record to sign that player. And people are going, oh, okay." And it's just, it's not, it'll improve Jack Grealish. And Jack Grealish will improve. And I think he'll improve City. So I'm not criticising it too much. But yeah, it is the... It's that it's that question. It's that dilemma. Is it a hundred million pounds worth of improvement? And and that's the issue. So I think that I can probably see where rival managers are looking at it and going, "Wow, is that is that something we'd do?" And Klopp certainly wouldn't, would he? <laughs> no. I, I don't want to let this one pass without you know,
1: bigging up Southampton. Do a degree fate. You know, on balance, they could have quite easily have won that game. Just want to dwell on James Ward-Prowse. That was his one hundredth consecutive appearance. He's one of the most consistent players in the Premier League. Is he almost a, a sort of spiritual heir to Frank Lampard in that sense? That you know he turns up, does his job, and does it well.
2: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And and actually, he's a big fan of, of Frank Lampard, and has spoken in many interviews before about wanting to emulate his career in in many ways. Perhaps won't get the same amount of trophies bearing in mind he's at Southampton which is you know a shame in many ways but equally he's a he's a stalwart he's still so young I remember meeting him when he was about 18 19 and thinking he had future captain written all over him he's very very mature young player and an excellent professional and again we were talking about Angelo Conte earlier on he's one of those players who just quietly goes about his business A 100 consecutive Premier League games is no mean feat I think Lampard has the record, is it 164 or 168, something like that?
1: 64, I think, yeah. Yeah,
2: 164. You know, that's absolutely incredible. And he's still pretty young, 26. I, I love watching him play. Penalties, set pieces, free, free kicks. He's, he's excellent. And he's a captain and a leader. Yeah, spiritual air, I know exactly what you mean.
3: I'm still staggered, you know. He it didn't. It wasn't in the UO squad. Absolutely amazed, not just because of his talent, but because Southgate has always liked him so much. I actually thought yeah. when I was when I was thinking about, say, maybe a month before the tournament, that stage you're clearly guessing, really, but the educated guess, I guess, would, would be to sort of kind of pick your starting lineup. I think a lot of people would put Ward Prowse in there as the as the, as the other midfielder, along Rice, alongside Rice. I mean, it was amazing.
2: I think he had a couple of poor games and didn't really cover himself in glory when he when he when he came on which was unlike him and you know Gareth Southgate would would ignore those and, and look more on on previous appearances I purely think he was a victim of the injuries to Jordan Henderson and Harry Maguire which meant that Gareth Southgate needed somebody who could play in defense and midfield which is why Ben White got the nod and I feel as if that's the only reason James Ward-Prowse missed out and it's so gutting for him.
3: Yeah, I'd still have had him in.
2: <laughs> <for these laughs> I agree, I agree.
1: Yeah, well, if you're talking about baffling decisions, John, you were at West Ham on Sunday. Mm. You know, that was an extraordinary end to the game, wasn't it? Talk us through it, please. You know, from the, from the view of the, of the people actually involved and especially David Moyes, how does he actually
3: explain that decision <laughs> to basically
1: bring Mark Noble on for a penalty kick?
3: So listen, it was the craziest seven minutes, last seven minutes of any game that you will see this season and perhaps any season. To to give it almost context, really, United go ahead 89th minute. It's the the pressure situation. They've had two big penalty appeals in in, in the meantime, almost, United. And it feels like this is going to be definitely United's win. So you can feel the momentum building. And West Ham are just pressing. And then some out of nowhere... They get this penalty. And so you could feel like everyone was streaming out the exits at the ground. It was one of those, the fans have given up. And then suddenly, 94th minute, you get this penalty award, which is then checked by VAR, which adds to the tension within the ground. No doubt about it, it must add to the nerves of the players who are thinking, oh, should I take this? And it was Declan Rice. Who he had been nominated. He was the man on the pitch, supposedly on penalty duty. A few of us were looking over intently at it. And basically, I actually think you could see the nervousness in Declan Rice's body language and thinking, mm, do I want this? West Ham have missed four of their last five penalties. So I'm being ultra fair to David Moyes here. But it was still utterly, utterly baffling to see him bring on Mark Noble. And yes, I know Mark Noble hasn't missed a penalty in in five years and I know all that and what a great penalty taker he is and what a great striker for the ball he is. But I just could not believe it because England did that in the summer with Rashford and Sancho. But at least they were warmed up to come on and they still missed their penalties. And I just think there's a lesson there. And David Moyes was on the UEFA Technical Committee. His report was, you know, part of his report was published last week so he knows the gambles and then you could see moy say to to mark noble on the, on the sidelines could you take it could you come on and i just think oh my it's it, it was it was absolutely baffling no one could quite believe what they were seeing it was like the quarterback coming on and basically to take take the final play in the american football and noble hadn't been warming up he'd just been watching it from the sidelines and I still thought Mark Noble would score. Every fan in the stadium, I think, you know, there's quite a clutch of fans sort of right near the press box who were sort of walking down the steps to leave when when all this drama unfolded. And and even they were saying, oh, don't worry, Mark Mark Noble will score. We shouldn't be surprised because he was cold. It wasn't a very good penalty. It was a really, really, really good save, but it, it wasn't the best penalty by any means. It was a good height. It wasn't in the corner. And it happens, the whistle goes, and every fan that streams past goes, I can't believe that just happened. I just cannot believe that, that David Moyes has done that. Because David Moyes is Mr Sensible. David Moyes is, is a brilliant, foot, experienced football manager. And I just, I'm still absolutely staggered that he's done that. Because I just fancy Declan Rice to smash it, rather than to bring Mark Noble on cold, to take it all day long.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Ronaldo earlier on, Faye. He got his usual goal. Should he have at least had at least one penalty there? You know, I'll put my hands up here. I think Martin Atkinson is a consistently mediocre referee. What was your view on that?
2: Interesting that Martin Atkinson was the referee involved as well because actually he was the VAR at Stockley Park when Walker had his penalty and red card, overturned for that foul on Adam Armstrong against Southampton. And I thought that, you know, we, we haven't touched on that. And uh, and that was Atkinson at Stockley. <sighs> I'm kind of with you on that. I would say not just one. He perhaps should have had two penalties, Ronaldo. I think he should have. The Kufau the one, clumsy, didn't get the ball. The Zuma one, definitely nowhere near the ball. I just wonder whether part of it is the perceived simulation from Ronaldo because he does try to win penalties. You know, that's what he's, that's what he's good at, but he he manages to do it because he gets in front of his defender because he's quicker than them. That is still a penalty regardless of whether he's gone to win it. If you like, you know, his intention would have been to go on and score or put the ball across uh, the ball in. So I, yeah, I, I think he should have had two. I think the whole match, there was some poor decision-making. There was some poor decision-making from Martin Atkinson. That's frustrating. There were quite a few frustrating decisions this weekend, and he was involved in two of those games.
3: Do you know what? The, I think the worst penalty decision in that game overall was one bissaka on, on Suchek. It's, yeah. just, it's just unbelievable.
2: He wiped so, him but, out, didn't he, completely? Yeah,
3: yeah. and basically I, w- I was, you know, set up in the press box and I think, did that actually just happen? No, I did actually sort of kind of message someone to sort of Stockley Park, basically, just to, just to check it out to see what the rationale was. Because at first we thought, right, OK, we was not given that because maybe it was, an off- it was an offside. And I'm thinking, no, 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 that can't be right because it's not reached the player. And it, it, it can't have been. And then to hear that it was given for a foul the other way it's just baffling. And I just think it was, a, it was a wretched game for those officials, really. And I do think that they... Listen, I actually think that Zo- the Zuma one wasn't a penalty because I think Ronaldo's on his way down. If you see it from a certain angle, Ronaldo's seeing, seeing the, the challenge coming in and I think he's, he's, he's going down and he's, he's thinking, right, penalty, I'm going to seal it. And basically i didn 't think that was a penalty I've seen it from a certain angle, and i 'm absolutely convinced it 's not a penalty. sue foul, I just think you never see a clearer penalty than that and I just think let let 's hope that this was basically down to some of the new directives that has left the referees a little bit confused in the early weeks because v a r deserved a fair bit of criticism there yesterday, because England should have basically backed up sort of Atkinson, basically, in, in, the, in, the, in the tag team. And so that was, that was a shame, really. But I just think VR is still not going to solve the good old-fashioned pub debate, really. But I just think the most incredible denial of a penalty decision yesterday was in West Ham's favour. I mean, it was at 1-1. Who knows? West Ham could have won the game. And frankly, that was the big—that was the biggest shock of all. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's just—I still can't get over it. And it is basically—it's almost lost in the melee that one because basically everything else has happened, and we forget about it. It's an absolute criminal.
1: I—I mm, I must admit, you know, in my old cynical ways, I, I sometimes wonder whether there's a bit of an old palzac going on there between Stockley Park and and an a referee under the spotlight. But uh, actually, incidentally, John. How was VAR communicated to the fans? Because I I just think that is one of the fundamental weaknesses of the current system. You know, you go to a uh, you know a rugby international or a, or a cricket international, you see what's going on, you hear what's going on. When you're in a football ground, it seems to me you're just kept in the dark.
3: You really are. And look, I think it's got better over a period of time. But this is my this was always my biggest bugbear because the if you're in the stadium, it feels like you're a second-class citizen in terms of VAR, in terms of communication. And there's been incidents, isn't there, this season where teams, I'm trying to think of an example where I was at a game earlier in the season. Sometimes you you, you can now get replays. And I was thinking, are you allowed to do that? And obviously checked sort of the following week with sort of kind of the Premier League. And indeed you are. You know, you are. And so basically, I wish you'd see more replays. You can't get it on the... It's a really controversial one, but there's certain instances where you can see a replay, and I'm amazed that more clubs don't do that. I guess they've got to have the right people to almost operate in the big screens on this. But you do then see, you do get a, a better explanation in terms of that that screen that comes up on the VAR explaining why, and I think that's an improvement. But it's not enough. It's not enough because if you're sat at home, you, you see the replay. And, and and basically, I just think there has to be this middle ground where I'm not I'm not saying that you you, you see the replay shown, and then basically all hell breaks loose because of, because of worries about the, the the fans and everything that goes with it. But it has to be a happy medium. The fans in the ground are treated to a better experience, and I still think that's the biggest sticking point. You're only allowed to do so much in the regulations. I change the regulations because. It's just not right that basically as a fan in the ground, you're sometimes having to go on your phone, tap up an illegal stream so that you can you know find out exactly what what's going on in your game, the game that you've paid so much money to get into. it's not right.
2: I agree with you John because when when we first when VAR was first introduced and we were all invited to to Stockley Park to to speak to Mike Riley about exactly how it was going to be implemented he was asked on a number of occasions exactly how that's going to be communicated and we're two seasons on now and I don't think it's still being done in the right way as you say I was actually quite surprised because I ran into my producer on Saturday because I'd heard at the Etihad when that VAR check for for walk- or on Armstrong was being made, the the pitch announcer actually said it at the Etihad, and that that had been the first time I personally had heard any kind of communication. Normally, you just have to look up and see the screen. Well, people aren't always automatically looking up at the screen and some screens are obscured at certain certain grounds. You know, at, at Arsenal, for example, the press box, you can't see from where I sit near the back, you can't see the screen at all. And so sometimes when there's a VAR check, you're not 100% sure. And I think that that 100% has to be... It's very difficult in the moment, I think, because... It, by, by proxy, every single VAR decision is potentially contentious, isn't it? And so somebody would have to decide whether or not that's likely to cause problems. Well, whichever way it goes, it probably cause a problem because everybody, football's subjective and everybody has a different opinion on it. So I don't see how you def, you get round that. But surely, as you mentioned, the Premier League would want, from their point of view, not for fans to be constantly looking at their phones, downloading illegal streams, as you say, to try and watch it—that just doesn't make any sense. Why be at the game?
1: Mm. You know, lest we forget, football is a game of flesh and blood. It's, it's, it's played by players and officiated by referees who, who've got families and feelings. That was brought into really sharp focus for me with a, a brilliant interview with Phil Jones by Johnny Northcroft in the Sunday Times where you went behind the the basic story of, of someone who's been injured since January 2020, ab- being abused in the street and online when he was with his young daughter. And also, as he said, when I was at my lowest as a human being, in tears, felt he was a poor father. Faye, did that give you an insight into the reality of football and why online abuse, anonymous abuse, is just so pernicious.
2: Absolutely. And I think it's so crucial that these kind of interviews are, are done. And Phil Jones said he's wanted to talk about it before, but drew the line when, when Rio Ferdinand made his comments regarding him just sitting there and taking the money. When it becomes personal like that, and actually one, one you know and an apologies to Rio Ferdinand for this but one lazy comment if you like because one can only presume that he didn't know the history of Phil Jones's knee problems and what he's actually had to go through over these past few years trying to sort it out can completely damage a player's reputation because it only takes one line like that for people to automatically whenever they talk about Phil Jones, to assume that he's just sitting there collecting his money. And that hurts the professional when they've done absolutely everything in their power to try and rectify a situation that's completely out of their control. So I think it's really important that he came out. It was a fantastic interview from Jonathan Norcroft. And you feel very much as if in society the the lazy stereotype of you know footballers just there collecting their money and you know not not being professional and you know that they're they're so privileged etc well there's a lot of baggage that comes along with being a professional footballer and i don't think any of them you know, sit there and say they're not grateful for the position that they're in, but they, they also work very, very hard for it. It's not their fault that the money that's in the game nowadays is as is, is astronomical as it is. And when you've got a young family and him talking about his daughter, just asking, Daddy, why why did that happen? That's just heartbreaking because a child's not ever going to understand that. And, you know, to to, to almost be in, in, embarrassed or... Sing- singled out by just a random person on the street who has an opinion and knows nothing about you. Any one of us would find that difficult to deal with.
3: Yeah. What were your thoughts on it, John? I thought it was a brilliant interview. I mean, it was it was amazing, you know, that sort of the, the opening, the way into it Jonathan wrote about was abused by the builder just going past as he sort of kind of was pushing a pram and was out with his with his daughter, you know. And I think it was incredibly revealing, really, about the abuse suffered and the way it hurt. I just also, I mean, I found it fascinating, fascinating, that it was the Rio Ferdinand remark that he found as the catalyst. The endless abuse from people like that in the street or on social media, and yet the, the comment, as, as Faye rightly points out, the lazy comment from, from Rio Ferdinand as, as the catalyst that really started process said right okay I want to put my side of the story because we shouldn't overlook the fact that when when Phil Jones moved to Manchester United he was probably the most sought after player in the country <laughs> you know he was a fantastic player and injuries have absolutely killed his career and I thought there was an interesting sidebar saying that sort of Sir Alex Ferguson saying what you know came up to him at I think it was relatively recently and sort of it blew his mind saying you know what a perf- incredible performance that he put in Against who was it? Against Real Madrid was it in 2013 and and sort of the background to his sort of signing and it suddenly puts it into context really. And it's so revealing about how abuse can hurt, how it shattered his confidence and how it's put him in this place. It did finish the interview by with Phil Jones saying that basically when, when everything's said and done, you know, I'll have had a good career and yes, I'll have earned well, that's not the be all and end all, but... The guy tweeting will still be on his on his laptop, basically in his mum's back bedroom, you know. And basically, that's the that's the way he sees it. I don't think that we 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 I don't think we're tackling abuse in the way we should, because I think that within football, there's been so much pressure, and rightly so, on on racist abuse, and it, it feels like there's been a great deal of pressure on that. And I, I, honestly, I can't stress enough that obviously that needs to continue and, and then some. But I don't think that the sort of kind of social media and football is tackling the, the other forms of it in terms of the, the constant jibes and the constant abuse, the constant almost mental bullying that has clearly affected Phil Jones so deeply. The homophobic remarks, the anti Semitism that goes on is never never challenged. I mean, you know, you can you can call Daniel Levy apparently whatever you like on the radio, and that goes unchallenged. It's just not right. I and mean, it's just it's shameful, frankly. And and while that continues, we will have more cases like Phil Jones, like other people in football, that will complain that that of, of the of the stress. And I mean it was a heartbreaking interview to 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 read and then assess i think because of the effect that it had on his mental health and 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 fundamentally and ultimately what what a shocking state of affairs your player can walk out you know walk away from that and sort of kind of say that and say admit that it's really affected him so deeply i think phil jones emerges much stronger from that interview and that's a really positive thing it certainly is and When we look
1: at a club like Brighton, they've had a great start on the pitch, Faye. But let's let's look at them off the pitch as well. You've got um, an owner there, Tony Bloom, who's probably put about 400 million, something like that, into the club. Recruitment's good. Dan Ashworth has got a a, a holistic approach to it. When we're talking about stories like the Phil Jones story, is it important that a club like Brighton have actually got Specific department on well being, they realize that their players are are not just commodities they're human beings, and they look after them. Is there a moral for the for the rest of the game in all that
2: yeah, I would say so i mean there there are always going to be people who are are critical of those kind of things and think that, you know, people should be hardened to it. But at the end of the day, if you look at it, so I look at it two ways, right? I, I'm quite a, a philosophical person. I'm quite a positive person. I look at it in terms of the human being, which I think should be first and foremost, the most important thing to think about. But if you look at it, bearing in mind, we're talking about the business of football in many ways, and that's how so many clubs view it these players are assets. So why would you not, if you want to look at it from a business point of view, why would you not want to protect them at all costs? Because your assets, if their well-being is looked after, if they're happy, you know, you you think relocating them, for example, finding them accommodation, looking after them when they're injured, this is all going to help them on the field. And that ultimately is what football clubs want. They want the resale value of their players to go up. So from a business point of view, it's absolutely vital. The human point of view is even more important because they are scrutinised so closely nowadays with social media and and everything else more than ever, ever before. You know, I, I know we're going to talk about Jimmy Greaves earlier, but that kind of era when you're thinking, you know, the closeness that, that players had back then to the fans and everybody else that distance is is huge nowadays but fans can still get to players through mediums that there's no con- real proper control over and th- the players are young they don't know how to deal with this. They can be given as many lessons and, you know, a, a advice as possible, but until they actually experience it and, and have help to have the strength of character to, to ignore it, you know, they, they're going to be exposed to, to some horrible things that they shouldn't have to. And I think having a well-being department, you know, as I say at the beginning, some people might, might deem that to be unnecessary. I think it's vitally important nowadays for, for both reasons.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, you mentioned Jimmy Greaves there and, you know, obviously you were at Tottenham, Faye, so I'll come back to you in a second. But, uh, John, you know, th- there's been a huge outpouring of of love and respect and admiration for Jimmy Greaves who passed away on Sunday. You know, lovely sort of poignant guard of honour by former Spurs greats on the touchline. Your personal reflections on, on Jimmy Greaves, please.
3: Well the 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 greatest goal scorer the greatest natural goal scorer that england have ever produced fourth in the list of england goal scorers of all time but if you look at the ratio it's incredible it's 44 goals in, <laughs> in what six caps and it's just a st- you know it's it, it's it's mind blowing frankly the 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 goal ratio is, is 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 higher than anyone else in that in that list the leading goal scorer in top flight football english football history but I also think that it, there's a couple of things that the other things that really strike me and why I think he sort of transcends sports in, in, in many ways is that basically his battle with alcoholism. And, but, you know, BT Sport did a fantastic documentary, which really, really struck me about his career, his downfall, if you like, because he was very, very candid and open as it was his family about his drinking in the latter days of his career, which kind of almost ruined his sort of final days of career. It didn't end well at, at West Ham. Someone told a great little sort of story yesterday about basically, you know, Chelsea fans will always say that Greaves was their greatest player. Tottenham fans will say that Greaves was that he, he played his best football for, for for Tottenham. If you ask West Ham fans, that, that then they'll say that basically he played his best football for um you know, Tottenham Tottenham and Chelsea, you know, because he just wasn't at it, because he's just on his way down. And yet, I, I don't tell that to deride the player, but I tell it because I just think he should be held up as a legacy and as an inspiration for someone who saw the bottle, bottom of the bottle, basically, was, was completely gone as an alcoholic, was fighting these demons, the impact it had on his family. We do look as footballers, whether they like it or not, as role models. And he was the ultimate role model for not just alcoholics, but also for families of alcoholics, I think. And I don't think we should ever underestimate the importance of his story and the way that he came back from that despair as I say, not just for, for, for alcoholics, but basically for the families who have lived with someone who's a heavy drinker or an alcoholic. And I think that was so important. And then also in the 80s and 90s, St. Greavesy, what a fantastic show. It was absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was, it was one that always made me laugh when basically, you know, St. Greavesy went out on the road during a TV blackout and West Ham had just signed Frank McAvenny. And Frank McAvenny was the leading goal scorer in the First Division at the time. And they took Frank McAvenny out with them on the streets of London and said, do you recognise this bloke? <laughs> it was just hilarious. It was hilarious. And no one did, frankly, because no one was seeing pictures of him. And, and basically, it sort of probably had an underlying message of get the, t- you know, get the football back on the TV, please, as quickly. I mean, they were working for ITV at the time. But it was hilarious TV. Only th- I think only bettered. By the fact that they, when they went to Trump Towers to get Donald Trump to do the Rumbelows Cup draw, and basically you know got Jimmy Greaves <laughs> making wisecracks about tr- about Trump Towers, comparing it to to you know deadly Doug Ellis' boardroom at, at, at Villa Park. I mean, it was just hilarious. And I watched that again yesterday before I wrote a sort of a tribute. And the the, the quips and the wisecracks, they, these two guys were fantastic comedians at the top of their game. And Jimmy Greaves had an amazing career, overcame alcoholism, and then had another career. What a life to lead. And yes, we should be sad. Yes, we should remember him fondly. But my word, we should celebrate his life and achievements. What a character.
2: Yeah,
1: and they, they did celebrate his life, didn't they, Faye? What was the atmosphere like? And again, your personal reflections of Jim, please
2: it was it was lovely actually i mean you couldn't have picked a more poignant fixture uh, to to be on the on the day because obviously a fan's favourite at at, at Tottenham but also made his mark at Chelsea and holds records at at both clubs and he was given a a really fitting tribute before the game, the players all standing round the centre circle and and applauding him and the noise was deafening inside the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and then at half-time reflections from former teammates and, and former Chelsea greats including... Glenn Hoddle, Martin Chivers and, and, and many more. Alan Mullery was there as well. It was just a really lovely day and a celebration of the man. Obviously, I, on my on the bus on the way there, I was listening to, to many fans reminiscing, older fans reminiscing about when they watched him. Obviously, I wasn't lucky enough to, to, to see him in the flesh, but Saint and Greavesy, I, I grew up on that and, and watching that partnership. And it was just a really... I thought the atmosphere might be a bit more sombre yesterday, but it wasn't. It was more of a celebration of the, of the man and the footballer.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's at times like these when we're given an insight into what makes a hero. Greaves meant goals. His record has been sustained across the generations and may never be surpassed. Yet it's as Jim, plain Jim, that he'll also be remembered. He is the hero as a human being. Funny, flawed, fragile, but a fighter. He wore his fame well. A legend, but a lovely man. And come to think of it, that's not a bad epitaph. Thanks then to Faye and John for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.
0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.